This last week has been a, um, a very busy week for this church. Uh, a bunch of us guys went out fishing at 0430 on Monday morning, 25 of us. It was really cold to start with, but it warmed up through the day. And my highlight was watching my son, Daniel, catch uh, one of the largest halibut that we caught on the boat. He could barely reel the thing in. And when he finally brought it in, it is, I think, in my personal opinion, the ugliest fish I have ever seen <laughs> in my life. But he was beaming. And um, that, I, all I caught was sharks. I caught two sharks, and both of them were poisonous. And so the guy said, that's not a good fish. I'm like, great, all I <laughs> was two sharks that are poisonous. But every, it was worth it because I, I watched my son catch a fish, and we had a good time. And, and then the girls left, our high school girls left on a backpack trip from uh, Monday to Thursday. And then uh, the boys went on Thursday, and they're still up there right now. And I just, I went up on Wednesday, and I came back. Uh, yesterday afternoon, and um, they're all doing well. They're safe, but I guarantee you they do not smell good. They do not smell good. So have showers ready when they, when they come back. Um, but this particular message was um, I had no laptop, and all I had was my Bible, a pen, and one book. And um, so if there's a bit of a, an alpine dust smell to this, well, that's why. But it's, I'll tell you, being out in creation and being able to think about God is far different than sitting in an office with sheetrock. And it's just, it was, it was good. And so I, I pray this blesses you. Um, I want to talk to you about the importance of the mind this morning. Now, um, the mind, of course, is a gift. And I think most of us can, can uh, think back to a time in which we didn't use it very well. And it turned out to be not so good. Uh, I, there are lots of those times for me. Um, most of them I keep secret because I don't want to be transparent about them. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but one time in particular, I remember high school, um, I had this little boy cave, you know, not man cave, but a boy cave. And uh, back then, there were uh, all we had was FM radio and cassette uh, players, and I had wired up this really cool, I thought was cool, sound system in my, my boy cave. And, um, and I, I couldn't get the FM uh, frequency that I wanted very well, so I had to, we live out in the country, so I had to wire up this antenna. So I ran this antenna up the wall and onto the ceiling of my room, and I couldn't figure out a way to attach it, so I took masking tape, and I masking taped the whole thing. You know, if you can picture this, I mean, it was just the most beautiful, stylish accent to an unfashionable room you could ever imagine. Well, it stayed like that for quite a long time until finally I, I said, I'm sick and tired of this. looks terrible. So I pulled it down, and as I pulled it down, it ripped through the tape, and the tape kind of was left dangling from the ceiling. Now, I couldn't reach it. So I decided, hey, you know what? I got a brilliant idea. I'm just going to burn it down. So burn it, you know? It's a true story. My parents will tell you it's a true story. You think I'm smart, but really, I'm not so smart. I went and, I went and got matches, and, and, I, and I lit it, and uh, I lit the other one, and I started letting And pretty soon, I'm looking, and I'm like, I can't blow those out. Because that was my plan, is to let them burn and then blow them out. I can't blow them out, and I can't touch them. So while these things are burning to the ceiling of my parents' place, I ran into the next room, got a chair, got one of my mother's towels, and I came back in, and I put the chair there, and I went over there, and I, I, you know, suffocated the flames. But not before it put these huge black scorch marks on the ceiling, and it damaged my mother's towel. <laughs> it's a classic, classic example of not really thinking things through. And my mother left those scorch marks on that ceiling for a long time, just to remind me, uh, bonehead, don't ever try that again. Think through what you're doing. Now, you laugh at me, but I know you guys do the same stuff, you know? 
you and your wife go off to Ikea and you pick up a piece of furniture and you try to put it together without reading the instructions and then you find all these bolts and stuff left over and the thing doesn't work right and you wonder why and your wife says, did you read the instructions? And in your mind you're thinking, oh, I should have read the instructions. And you don't want to admit that you didn't because the smart thing to do is read the instructions and put it together with the people who made the thing. I know you've done that before. (laughs) Wow, I'm confessing a whole bunch of stuff up here because that's (laughs) happened to me. The mind, the brain, the intellect, the ability to reason. Everybody in this room, every human being has been given the ability to think. Um, It's the ability by which we make judgments, moral distinctions. Uh, We interpret communication. Um, Right now, what we're doing is using our minds. At least I hope we are. And what I'm saying, I'm using my mind to form words into sentences, into paragraphs. And then you're listening and you're trying to understand what's being done. This is all work of of the mind. And it is an amazing gift that God has given to his people is their minds, the intellect and reason. And as I said, that's what I want to talk about this morning because someone came up to me a few weeks ago and asked me a question about the importance of the mind in terms of Ephesians. And I understood the context of the question because some weeks ago, I, 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 I gave a message and it asked a question and answered it. And that question was, how do we as believers uh, convert the content of the gospel into raw conviction that changes life? And so how do we convert facts about what God has done into personal, vibrant, living faith? And we went down a couple of dead-end streets. Maybe the answer is we need to study harder with the powers of the human mind. And I made the point that that's a dead-end street. We're not going to convert facts of faith by simply studying harder. And then we tried the other volitional approach. Maybe it's praying harder. And uh, I made the point that's a dead-end street too. The powers of human volition can't, in praying, can't convert fact to faith. And finally, we came to the answer of how do we do it? Well, we don't. We can't, not with the powers of the human intellect and not with the powers of human volition. It is the spirit of the living God who must convert the content of the truth into raw conviction. So this uh, high school girl comes up and says, well, then what place does thinking have in the Christian life and in this whole theme of grace? I I think it's a brilliant question because she was listening. Okay, so, so... What part does our studying play in this process? Does it play any at all? Or are we just passive and just say, okay, God, do whatever you're going to do and then kind of put our minds on passive? Because that's one of the logical conclusions that one could have gotten from what I taught. Well, I want to pick up that question. What place does the mind and the intellect have um, in the place of God's working of grace that doesn't depend upon the powers of human strength? That's the question. And I believe it's uh, an important one for us. Because the Bible, like it or not, does place great weight upon the importance of the human mind. In fact, here's my thesis statement. That the operation of the human mind or operating the human mind in dependence upon the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for Christian life. Let me say that one more time because I want you to get the pieces Um, the operation or the exercise of this reason or intellect that God has given to us in dependence upon the Spirit of God is absolutely necessary for the living out of the Christian life or the kind of bring that down um, 
proper thinking is required for proper living. Right? Um, now, let me make two quick caveats because I'm concerned on the one hand, for those who were like me in grade school and high school, didn't do too well. You might find yourself one of those people who think, well, your self-perception, that is, is that I'm, I'm not a super smart person. I have a hard time understanding things, and, and so I'm pretty sure this message is not for me, and if it is for me, it's going to make me feel like a loser because I am not a great thinker. I want to say to everyone here that God has given you a mind, and he didn't make an accident when he gave you your specific way of thinking, the questions that you have, um, your background. Um, the point is to be faithful with God, what God has given to us on whatever level of spectrum. I mean, ultimately, our spiritual life is not measured by how smart we are, but how faithful we are with what we've, we're given. The second caveat is just to recognize that, that um, while everything, I want to affirm, everything in the Christian life is based on and is a product of grace, that doesn't mean that God doesn't use means to apply his grace to our lives. God has determined that, that he would water the earth via the means of dew and rain. So that's what he determined it would come in the form of, and it waters the ground. And so in the same way, God has determined means to bring his grace to us. The central means of all history, of course, is Jesus, is the, the, the means of, of salvation. But we also learned last week that God has determined that his message or the good news be the instrumental vehicle by which we're changed. We hear the news, God opens the heart, and we respond to it. But for a fact that it's news and needs to be responded to also includes, I think, by implication, the necessity of understanding the good news, the, the mind, the thinking part of us. So let me support the thesis that the operation of the, of the mind in humble dependence upon the Spirit um, is absolutely essential for the living of the Christian life. And it's supported three ways, um, going from general to specific. And you might think, why do you have to prove that? I believe wholeheartedly it needs to be restated because we are living, whether we're conscious of it or not, we are living in a culture that is moving in a direction of anti-intellectualism. By and large, the people alive today will accept the conclusions of pop culture without really stopping to thinking and thinking, is that true? And questioning the consensus of worldly thinking. There, that is, we need to be thinking more now than ever. And rather than just go with the flow of saying, ah, it really doesn't matter what I think, or it's not important for me to, to sharpen my mental faculties, um, you just kind of go with the cultural flow, which is going to end in hell. So that's why I think it needs to be supported. I just want to kind of affirm to all of us that the mind is very important according to the scriptures. So three lines of, 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 of support here. One, just has to do with the nature of good news itself. That is, news by nature appeals to the mind. Tom Brokaw gets on, uh, on the station and tells us he is informing us of facts. And those facts appeal to the mind. They need to be understood with this thing called the intellect and understood and interpreted and then um, responded to if need be. News. By very nature, news appeals to the mind. So does the good news of the Bible. Or to give you an example, um, the year is 1996. And uh, my wife and I, Deanna and I, had been trying for nine, ten months to, to have a child with no success. 
And in the summer of 96, after trying for eight, nine, ten months, um, I went away on a little trip up into the mountains with my family for about a week, week and a half. And that was at a time we didn't have cell phones, so there's no texting, no Skyping. We didn't communicate in that week and a half. So I got back on the plane after our, my little, uh, little uh, hiatus with my family, and I flew into O'Hare Airport. My wife met me at the terminal. This was pre-9-11 days, so you could actually go to the terminal and, you know, that big reunion doesn't happen anymore. Um, and uh, she met me. She gave me a big hug, and she whispered in my ear. She said, welcome home, Daddy. And at first, it totally caught me by surprise. Like, who calls their husband Daddy? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, maybe they do today. There's that, you know, who's your daddy, all that stuff. <laughs> uh, maybe that's, that works in today's culture. But at that point, I'm like, what? And, it, and it, I was really slow at that moment. I said, so, Daddy. But I thought about it. I mean, she said the words, but I didn't understand them. But then as I pieced together by implication, if you're calling me daddy, that means I'm a father, which means you're probably pregnant. And I said, are you serious? And she said, yes. I found out just a couple days ago. We both rejoiced. And, and out of that, uh, a whole flurry of activity of decorating a room and buying stuff that you need a van and a bus to carry from place to place. Anyway, I said, before I could rejoice before we'd act, I had to understand what she was saying. That's the simple point. It's news by very nature, good news. By the fact of the matter that, that God has given to us a message, news, implies that it's received by this thing we have up here, our mind, our understanding. It, it begins there, and then it moves to the heart. One must think before one can live. Second line of... Um, support, has to do with the content of Ephesians 1 through 3, is that Paul constantly appeals to this thing he calls the mind. Now, follow me here. Um, I'm just going to go through this really quickly. Um, chapter 1, verses 4 through 14 is, is a tremendously compact and condensed explanation of what God has done from eternity past into the future and our eternal inheritance. And it requires contemplation. It requires a level of pondering and thinking about and putting together and drawing out. That is, it requires mental activity. No one can really understand the density of these verses without doing some mental work. That's probably why in the, in the prayers that follow, he, he prays this. He prays that God might give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. This is chapter 1, verse 17. Of revelation in the knowledge of him. Did you get those three words? They're thinking words. Wisdom is a thinking word. Revelation, a thinking word. And knowledge of him, a thinking word. He goes on in that prayer talking about the fact that we having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, there's another thinking word, that you might know. Another thinking word. What is the hope to which you have been called? So the whole first chapter appeals to the mind. He prays for them to get it with their minds. Um, chapter 2 appeals to remembering the whole thing. Remember when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were objects of wrath and then what God did in an act of grace to raise you to his right hand. Remember. Um, the second half of chapter 2, remember that at one time you were Gentiles, cut off and separated and alienated. You had no part in God, no hope. Remember. And that's calling to the mind. It's a function of our mental, intellectual faculties to remember. This is who I used to be, and this is who I am now. So chapter 2 appeals to the mind. Chapter 3, Paul describes his own calling as, you know, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, preaching his content to be heard and understood, and to bring to light for everyone. Well, bring to light in what way? Well, 
to bring to light so people can know what was hidden, know the mystery. So calling is one of imparting things that people need to know. And then he kind of concludes these three chapters with, with his prayer that we, being rooted and grounded in love, might have strength together with all the saints to comprehend. Big thinking word. To comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know another thinking word, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So all three chapters, when he lays out this amazing plan of God's grace, appeal to our minds to take it in, to think about it, to contemplate it and live in light of it. But it appeals to the mind first. In order to live, we first must think about the good news. That's second, support. Now, let me get specific in our text. Chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. We find specific instruction that stresses the importance of the mind in the Christian life. Now, let me read for you the entirety of it because he contrasts the old way of life to the new way of life, the old way of thinking to the new way of thinking. Verse 17 of chapter 4, he says this, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, just as a, as a comment, um, Paul is deeply concerned that Christians live differently morally than non-Christians. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Or this is a way of saying, don't live like you used to live. There's got to be a moral change. Now he goes on to talk about who the Gentiles are. Listen to this. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, in the culture in which we live, the secular minds, atheistic minds, agnostic minds, would lead us to believe that there is this great antithesis between faith and reason. And that Christianity is a non-rational thing. As if we are people who do not use our minds. I've heard it. I have heard it just this last week in dialoguing with somebody who's an atheist. I don't buy faith. I believe in reason. Well, it's interesting. Paul sees this as precisely the opposite. He sees those who don't believe as the ones who are thinking in futility. That thinking in this closed system of the world in which, in the end, everything ends in pointless death. It's futile. They're darkened in their understanding. They're ignorant because of the hardness of heart. That it's precisely the opposite. To not believe in the ultimate reality is ultimately to make one's mind foolish. In fact, it's our faith in the reality of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ that actually energizes us to think rightly. There's no way that he was anti-intellectual, but rather it's the disbelieving who are anti-intellectual, is what he says here. Darkened in their minds. And by the way, you notice the, the connections, that it's the, the moral hardness of their hearts. There's that the, the because of this and then due to this. That it's the moral hardness of their hearts that leads to ignorance, which then leads 
them to be cut off from life itself or the realities of God um, because they, their thinking is futile and mind darkened. As a result of their darkened thinking and futile mindset, they are greedy to practice all kinds of impurities. That their darkened and futile thinking leads to wrong and self-centered living. Now, that's the contrast. That's how we're not supposed to live in that darkened understanding. But every one of us was there before we believed. Hard heart, ignorant, darkened in our understanding, no matter how many degrees we had or how smart we thought we were. But at some moment, God's spirit broke through. We sang about it a few moments ago, Light of the World. You know, open my eyes and let me see. Is that God opened our eyes, the eyes of the heart, to a reality that is beyond us. The eternal reality is that there is a God, and he is, he is holy and just, but he is infinitely loving and immeasurably grace, and he has done an amazing work in Christ to raise us from the dead and give us himself. And that is a whole new way of looking at life. And it's that new way of looking at self and new way of looking at the realities around us. It's a new vision of life. It reminds me a little bit of a scene in which Morpheus, this is in uh, the trilogy, the first of the trilogies, The Matrix, and Morpheus comes to Neo and he offers him a red or a blue pill. But if you take the blue pill, he says, you're going to be opened to the reality. And he takes the blue pill and, of course, his eyes are open and he realizes, wow, this is what I thought wasn't real. That's what happens when the Spirit of God opens the eyes in response to the news. It's like, wow, this is real. And it changes our lives and our whole way of thinking. But we were all at one point darkened, futile in our thinking. But there's been a transition now. Now notice, he talks now to the Christian about how we're supposed to live. Not in that old way of darkened understanding, but verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Learned is a mind word, a thinking word. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. Teaching, thinking, go together. As the truth is in Jesus. Truth is something that appeals to the mind in Jesus. And here is the truth that they learned. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed, renewed in the spirit of your minds, minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's telling the Christian people he's writing to who are facing two dangers, by the way, of either lapsing back into the old way of thinking or lapsing back into the old way of living. He's saying you need to put off that old self that once was dominated by futile thinking and wrong ways of living and to put on the new self. There is a new self that has come into being, a new creation. That's the language here, created after the likeness of God. Something new has happened in you. And that's the reality, the newness that you're now to live in. But notice in between the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new is this statement of verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the sense is, in order for us to put on the new self, we must have a renewal of mind. That is this part of us. It's the faculty of mental, intellectual, reasoning, rational, interpretive capacities that we have. To think about things, ponder things, to remind ourselves of things. That we're to be renewed in this mind, and it's to be a constant thing. 
So now I say all of that, all those three points, basically just, just to underscore and remind us all that, 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 that the Bible is not anti-intellectual. In fact, it places great weight on the use of this thing we call the mind at whatever level and however it's shaped in your particular personality. It's part of renewing, part of putting on the new creation. That's how important the mind is. Get, got that part? I just wanted to say, you know, in, 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 in contrast to this slide towards anti-intellectual, just accept what popular culture says without any critical assessment as to whether it's true or not, that we have to be thinking people. The Bible calls us to be thinking people. Put on the mind of Christ. Now, let me be more specific. So what does that, what does that look like? What, what does it mean to be renewed in the spirit of your mind? What does it actually look like on a day-to-day level, if it's that important? Now, let me start with the focus of the mind that he has in, 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 um, in view here. I'll keep this verse here up on the top underneath the title. But the focus of the mind in, in Ephesians, and I'm also going to get more specific, um, is the realities of the good news. The reality that, one, there is a God, that God has chosen us, that God in an act of mercy and grace has come down and taken our place and has died our death and given us life and has now raised us to the right hand. That he has saved us, that he has made us part of his holy dwelling, that he has made us one man in whom he dwells and that we are forever his children. The realities of the gospel. It's the focus on that on who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, and now who we are, that is to be the focus of our thinking. That's what renews. But he's even more specific, I think, in this passage, because what he has in mind here in terms of being renewed in the spirit of your minds is in specific who we are now in relation to God because of Jesus. Or let me put it differently, that we are to see ourselves as Christians as new creatures. That's the created after the likeness of God. That is the new self that he's given to you. So the old world-centered, darkened mind self that used to do the wrong things for the wrong reasons, that's not you anymore. There's a new you that's come into being. And in particular, that new you has a specific identity. We talk a lot about identity, and, and yet sometimes we don't know what that word identity means. Back up a second. I think the idea of identity comes out in, in the whole putting off and a putting on of things. That's obviously clothing, language, changing clothes. You take off a coat, you put on a coat. That's clothing imagery. Um, but what he's trying to get at using that is, isn't clothing or something superficial. He's getting at what identifies us, what gives us a sense of worth. In ancient times, uh, clothing would, would often assign you a particular identity. If you, if you wore the garb of a carpenter, then you were identified as a carpenter. If you wore the, uh, you know, the garb of a, of a priest, then you were looked up as a, as a priest. Or uh, rabbis wore particular types of robes, and they would be identified as a rabbi. Same thing today. You, know, you see someone with a, with a green apron, you might think, hey, they are a Starbucks worker. Or you see somebody in a police uniform, hey, that's a policeman. It identifies you as something. We're saying, listen, take off the old identity which used to be assigned or aligned with certain things and put on the new identity of who you are now as a new creature. But still, what is, what is that identity thing? Let me take a stab at it this way, that I, I think whatever we, whatever 
gives us a sense of worth, meaning, significance, and importance is that with which we are identified. It's what makes us feel important. It's what makes us feel meaningful. It's what makes us feel like we have a justified existence. So if you're an athlete and you build your identity on your performance as an athlete, then when you do well and you win the race, then you feel good. When you get the, uh, the applause from the people that, wow, you're a really good runner, well, then you feel good about yourself. But when you lose the race or you can't run anymore because you have some kind of an injury, well, then you lose that sense of self and you go into a kind of a pit of depression or, or what's the meaning of my life now? It's because a person has built his identity on it as, a, uh, as a performing athlete. And everybody in the, in the world has something that gives them a sense of significance and meaning or worth that they live on. Everybody. I can tell you by way of personal confession, this is a confession. As I said earlier, I didn't do so well in school, in elementary school or high school. And so I kind of had this massive change where then I went to the other extreme on the other side. So afraid of failing that when I got to college, I, I, I did really well. Um... But what I didn't know, wasn't consciously aware of, is that I was, I was building a sense of self-worth, a sense of importance or significance on how well I did academically, how well I performed. So when I, I heard some of my buddies like, um, oh, what's his name, Takahashi used to call me and say, hey, Scholar Dan, because I used to help him with Greek. And I remember thinking, wow, that feels good. I'm not tooting my horn here because this is a confession. It was an idolatry. It felt good when I got an A on the exam and did well when someone read something that I, I wrote and thought, wow, hey, that's really good. It was just like I felt like I had meaning in life. Then I'll never forget, I, I had it turned in a huge paper. It was a linguistics class. And I couldn't wait to get it back. You know why? Because I fully expected an A at the top, and this was amazing. I got it back, and this was... Um, I got a B minus, but that itself was a stretch. I probably should have got a D. Um, it happened to be a class with D.A. Carson. You, some of you know him. He's like a brilliant guy, and I'm thinking, I just want to impress this guy and tell me how well I write, and I, I got it back, and a B minus, and he says, see page two. I opened the page two, and it said, fatal flaw in logic, and he never read the rest of the paper. And you know what? I was crushed. I was crushed. But I'll tell you what, the Lord showed me something through that, and he's continued to show me, show me that, you know what, you, you can't, I can't have academic performance as the basis of my worth. Because then, when I do well, I feel great and probably superior to others, a form of self-righteousness. Or when I don't do so well, then I go down into the dumps and I feel defeated and worthless. And, and you struggle with the same things. On what do I build my sense of worth? Uh, if you happen to be a, you know, a fairly good-looking lady and, and you've always had a slim figure and people have always complimented you on your hair and your, and your, your heels and you like to dress well and you enjoy it when, when heads turn and when the younger guys notice you in your later years and you're like, wow, I still got it. But if that becomes the kind of the substance of your significance and sense of worth, well, then when somebody younger, hotter, sexier comes in who has a great sense of humor and all the heads now turn towards that person, you're dethroned, displaced. There's a sense of who am I again? 
And the reason you feel that way is because you built your sense of worth and significance and self-justification on your looks. Guys do it financially. We do it with our careers so that when guys retire, they th- though they don't expect it, they realize, wow, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do anymore because they tied so much sense of worth and significance to what they did as a career field. Now, I want to say that that way of, of establishing one's worth on worldly things is exactly what he's talking about in feudal minds, darkened understanding, because it's intrinsically self-centered. It's what he says, greedy to practice. It's like trying to establish one's sense of, of worth and significance based upon worldly things. And you'll constantly be trying to pull other things in to make you feel that way. The Christian is not to do that. To recognize that that faulty foundation of life, the old self, is just doomed. But rather, he says here, by the renewing of your mind, put on the new self. Who's the new self? You know who the new self is? It's it's that realization and that truth that I am a child of God because of God's grace and grace alone with no amount of performance on my part. That may, not, that may sound abstract, but it, it is not abstract. To walk into a room and know that what all, the only thing that matters to me and gives me a sense of satisfaction and, and meaning and worth is the fact that I'm loved by my Father. And I'm fully accepted in His sight because of Jesus, and He loves me, and He'll never love me more or less. I'll never be more or less worthy in His sight because of what Jesus did. And I live in that reality. Then once satisfied, it doesn't make a difference whether the person makes more money than you or whether someone's smarter than you because that's not where you operate. That's not your sense of center. You see, to, to get this part right here where He says the, the, the renewing of your mind, which is a way of saying remember who you are. You are a child paid for completely by the, by the blood of Christ, and you are his love. That is who you are, a new creation. You live in that reality. You remind yourself that this is who I am now. That's living and dwelling and thinking about who I am in Christ. And there lies freedom. I don't have to be the smartest anymore because that's not what matters. You don't have to be the best looking anymore because that's not what matters. You don't have to be financially well off. Because that's not what matters. The only thing that matters to the Christian or should matter to the Christian that he reminds himself over and over again, and we do so in community and church and worship, is that I am loved by God and that is enough for my soul. That is life-altering. But it's something that involves the mind. That's the focus. I, I hope, if nothing else, you didn't hear anything else, I hope you heard that part. Because if we're dominated by what other people think of us, then we're living in the old life and not the new life. And we're living in slavery. Always performing or defeated. That's not the child of God. That's not where I want to be. It takes a constant renewing of the mind, reminding ourselves who we are on the basis of the good news. Another thing that this means on the practical level, and I don't know how else to put this, but uh, kind of the prayerful dependence on the Spirit You'll notice in verse 23, again, it says, and to be renewed in the spirit with, of your minds and put on the new self. The first part, to be renewed, you say, well, how do I be renewed then? It's just thinking and, and preaching to myself. Well, yeah, that in one sense. But you'll notice that it's in the passive. He says, to be renewed instead of renew yourselves. He doesn't say that. 
that gives the distinctive impression that somebody else is involved in the process of renewing. And that someone else is the spirit of God and the grace of God. There's a way in which we think passively, or a better way to put it is we think dependently. And then in the very next section, when it says, and put on the new self, now that's in the active. This is something we're supposed to do. You see, you have kind of a passive sense and an active sense. And the only way I know to make sense of that is that there is a sense in which we are actively thinking in complete dependence upon God's grace. And the best way that's expressed in life in the truth thermometer as to whether you are truly trusting God in, the, in your mental work is whether you are accompanying your mental work with praying. And prayer is the expression of faith saying, God, I can't quite get this. And through the Bible, you see this thing called like David saying, teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. He knows the only one who can instruct his heart is the Lord. So he prays. Probably why Paul spends little sections praying in the middle of this amazing description of the good news because he knows that ultimately we can't get it with our minds. So we pray or we, we think prayerfully. I have done study without prayer. And you know what that is? It's self-reliance. Those two were meant to go together like two dance partners to be able to take sections of, you know, that I am a co-heir and I am a member of the same household and I am a partaker of the promise. Oh, Lord, teach my heart to know and believe those truths. So where there is study in the Christian heart, there is also praying and dependence. That's how it manifests itself, is this dance of prayer and study at the same time. That's how we reflect dependence. That's, if you think to yourself, I, I have a really hard time with the Bible, studying, understanding. Is there a dance between your prayer life and your, and your study life? Are you really trusting that the Spirit of God actually will give you eyes to see and understand things that you didn't see before? That he's your teacher. The third thing, and I only have four, um, this will go quick, is the um, context. This is also, I think, a freeing concept. We tend to be an overly individualized culture. Um, we have our own houses with fences to isolate ourselves, and we have our own cars and our own clothes, and there's a lot, not a lot of sharing. And when you come to this idea of renewing the mind, almost everybody thinks of what can I do individually to renew the mind. And what comes... In terms of uh, images, what comes to the mind of many is, oh, I need to go into my, my closet, and I need to pull open my Bible and, and um, pull open some commentaries, and I need to do intense, isolated study. That's how I renew my mind. I don't want to diminish the importance of personal study, but I'll tell you what, that image of someone sitting down over a Bible all by themselves and pouring over the Scripture is something that didn't exist in the first 15 centuries of the church. They didn't have their own Bibles. So if that's the standard, then we have a, most of church history that is in complete failure. It wasn't about that. Rather, their understanding, their renewal of the mind was, would, took, would take place in a communal setting. In fact, that's the, like the, the, that's the theme of the book, right, uh, of Ephesians, of what God has done to unite all things in Christ. And the emphasis on the one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. That we are one temple. All of us united together that we are one man combined of many joints in one growing into Christ. There's, there's this communal sense that it screams through the book. So it would be a tragedy to come to this idea of renewing the mind and all of a sudden go isolationist. The fact of the matter is this renewal of the mind and the thinking is a communal affair. 
I mean, in those times, it would have been somebody reading the scripture and then them listening and then them dialoguing about it, asking questions about it, encouraging each other with it, singing the songs. That is a communal enterprise. So if you're one of those people who constantly feels like a failure, because, you know, when you go into your closet and you pull out the Bible and the commentary, and you're like, I have a really hard time. That's okay. You weren't meant to get it all by yourself. That's what the body is for. A side note, the idea that we can get the Bible all by ourselves in isolation from other people using inductive Bible study methods, which I love, is arrogance and a denial of the diversity of the body of Christ, that we all need each other to bring our diverse perspectives on the Bible, asking our own questions and saying, wow, I never saw that before. Some of the most enlightening moments in my life have happened when I have I've been discussing the gospel with a group of friends in the Newport Coffee House. And it was just the Lord satisfied my soul, brought new insight. Or sitting at Starbucks or sitting over lunch with a brother and talking about the Lord. That is renewing our minds. It's, we can't be inflexible. But it is a communal affair. And that should free God's people to know that, you know what, I don't have to be the teacher and I don't have to be a person who's great at personal inductive Bible study in order for me to do this. Let's get together and let's talk about Jesus and talk about the Bible together and, 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 and reminisce and love and revel in the fact that, that we are new creatures in Christ and that old stuff that we used to base our life on, that doesn't matter anymore. That's, that should be freeing to a lot of people, especially those who find themselves um, paralyzed by a deficient, perspective on their own intellectual ability. It doesn't make, make a difference. Um, and then the, fi- the final one just has to do with the, the motive. Because there are a lot of people who study and use the mind for the wrong motive of being seen, of gaining superiority, of dominating over others. Because if you're the answer man, then people look to you and you're given power. And that is from the pit of hell, that motive. So what is the driving motive ultimately? in opening the Bible or getting together and talking about Christ or going to a seminar or listening to worship tapes or listening to uh, MP3 sermons on, on in your headphones. Well, this is it boiled down. I, t- I had to throw this in because it was had to do with motive, and that is uh, simply the joy of knowing God. If not so, other people can see you smart or because you memorize a whole bunch of verses. It's just a, I want the joy of knowing, knowing God. If I take my wife out on a date, it's not so other people can see me and say, oh, he's a great husband. It's because I want to know my wife. I just want to know my wife. So when you exercise the mind, what, what is the fundamental motive? I think if the Spirit of God is hungry and thirsting in you, it's simply to know the joy of being in relationship with God. And I've tried, I've tried a, um, I tried a um, object lesson with my last Edwards group. It's kind of a theology group that's communal in nature, trying to understand theology and love God and and I passed around this cardamom pod. And uh, a cardamom pod is like this little green pod, and they use it in Indian cooking. And uh, if you open it up, it has all these little tiny black seeds in it, full of flavor. And I passed around and said, all right, guys, we're going to do a little object lesson. I, I had them, I said, put it in your mouth, but don't bite down on it. And so they put it in their mouth, and it doesn't taste like much when, when you're just sucking on it. And I said, okay, now, I want you to bite down on it, and I want, to tell, I want you to tell me what you experience. And so they bit down on it, and it's like it just explodes with flavor in your mouth. Absolutely. Explodes. It's just like, wow, that is a powerful spice. And I said to them, now, I want you to remember this, that thinking is like chewing. 
It's like the teeth. We don't simply chew as an end in and of itself. We chew to savor the flavors of what we're chewing. In that way, the mind works a bit like teeth. It's like I come to a text or we come together, we dialogue and discuss the, the gospel. We're using our minds to release the wonderful and amazing flavors of all that God is for us in Jesus and finding ourselves overwhelmed by who he is. See, it's a means to an end. And if the joy of the Lord is the end in you, by using your mental faculties in communion with other people, or saying, I want to enjoy the Lord, so I am going to use this mind to chew on the truth, and by the Spirit of God, I am going to enjoy him. That is a motive for study. That is a motive for using our minds and our intellects and our reasoning abilities so that we might savor the full flavors of all that God is for us in Jesus and to know that he is gracious in a way that changes life. So is the mind important? I hope you would say absolutely. And whatever level God has given you, he has not made a mistake with your intellect, your personality, and the blending of your background just use your mind in community and, and savor God and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And, and then we will see ourselves living in that new self, no longer dominated by the categories of the world or what they want to assign us or the importance that they want to give to us based upon worldly things. Because the only thing in the end that matters is that you are a child of God, loved and graciously accepted because of Jesus. And that's worth using your mind to remind yourself of. A little amen. Oh, Lord, this is easy to say and so much more difficult to do, but I, I just pray for liberation for this body, um, liberation of thinking, and um, that people would see the joy of, of using what you have given to them and the freedom of knowing that 